I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The Deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcasts. And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This is the new podcast that has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor with Scarlett Fu and Julia Chatterley on Bloomberg Television called What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspectives on the week's top stories and, well, those that you may have just missed. It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. To start, this week we spoke with Daniel Rasmussen, founder and portfolio manager at Verdad Advisors, about whether private equity is really the holy grail of investing as its advocates claim. Take a listen. Yeah, well, I think there are really three things that people need to understand about private equity today. Uh, The first is that there's an overwhelming consensus among institutional investors about private equity, that it's basically the holy grail of investing. Uh, A recent Prequin survey suggested that 50% of institutional investors believe that private equity will outperform by 4% per year. Another 45% think it will outperform uh, by 2% per year. The second thing you you need to understand is that those expectations are wildly off. Uh, Private equity has not outperformed the public equity market since 2010. In fact, on a one-year, three-year, and five-year basis, according to Cambridge Associates data, private equity is underperformed by 4%, 2%, and 1%. Uh, And the third thing you need to understand is that that institutional consensus that private equity uh, is going to outperform the public equity market is what's driving uh, purchase prices higher and what's driving returns down. Uh, And so having studied this for seven years, uh, I felt it was important to write and to say these expectations are crazy. Private equity will not deliver those returns. It has not been delivering those returns. And public equity investors need to look elsewhere. So, Dan, what would you say to uh, private equity managers who say, look, we go in, we help manage the companies, we make sure that they do the right thing, and therefore we provide alpha that's independent of the market cycle? Well, first of all, they have not provided alpha over the past three years, five years, or one year. And in fact, the 2015 private equity vintage has underperformed the public equity market by 5% per year. Uh, So there's not a lot of evidence right now that they have generated alpha in the post-crisis era. In fact, operational improvements, which is the big claim of alpha drivers, if you look at what private equity firms do when they buy companies, there's no big systematic change in operational metrics. What you do see is a significant increase and leverage. Uh, And I think that too many folks have confused leverage for genius. Daniel, how do you quantify the level of systematic change within companies and then determine that there hasn't been very much? So I looked at every company. There were about 390 private equity deals that issued public debt 
uh, as part of their financing, uh, which meant that they were able to, they had to provide financials both pre and post acquisition. Uh, so I looked at how did the financials change? What was the difference pre and post? Uh, and what you saw is that revenue growth slowed, EBITDA growth slowed, CapEx spending went down as a percentage of sales, and leverage went way up, and interest payments went way up. Uh, and I think that makes logical sense, right? This is the leverage buyout industry, uh, not the operational wizard uh, genius uh, industry. But if they use cash and debt to acquire and you see a boost to the internal rate of return here, the interest paid on the debt becomes a component of the EBITDA of the business. I guess they would push back and argue that point. But Daniel, we're talking quite generically at this stage in, in particular. Are there anomalies here? Are there private equity companies that actually are outperforming? There certainly are. Uh, there are certainly firms that are doing a great job. Mm. And I think what those firms tend to have in common uh, is that they're buying at significantly lower prices than the broader private equity market. Um, so if you look at what's going on in terms of prices, uh, private equity average purchase multiples hit 9.5 times EBITDA at the height of the pre-crisis boom in 07. Uh, they came back to 9.5 by 2014, and we're now up to 11 times EBITDA. And at those valuations, 15% higher than firms were paying in 07, and they didn't really beat the market by very much in the 07 year vintage, um, private equity firms, almost it's almost impossible to make money buying at those valuations. Now, there are firms that can find much cheaper deals or have great price discipline, um, but those are a few and far between. Daniel, can you name and shame? Who are the underperformers here and who are the outperformers? in terms of private equity firms? You know, in terms of price discipline, I, I think that two of the uh, standouts really are Apollo uh, and Oak Tree, um, who are the folks that are really buying things uh, cheap. Um, and I think broadly, you know, almost anyone else in the industry is buying expensive, okay, so, uh, although there are other exceptions. All right. So what have your colleagues, your former colleagues at Bain uh, Capital, what have they said to you about this article? Uh, you know, I think that um, a lot of folks in private equity um, know that these things are true. They know it's a much more difficult environment. Um, if you look at what the CEO of Blackstone or Apollo or Carlyle are saying in their press conferences and their public statements, um, they all agree that valuations are very high. Yeah. It's a difficult deal environment. All right. And simultaneously, they're raising more and more money. So uh, what do you think that investors should do with their uh, new dollars instead of uh, private equity? Good question. So I think if you want to make private equity returns, um, you have to do what the private equity firms did when they made those returns, uh, which is to buy small companies at cheap valuations uh, and use leverage to do that. Uh, and I think there are great opportunities in the public equity market to buy leveraged small value equities and get returns that look like 1980s or 90s LBO. Uh, but it's not going to happen in private equity. We also spoke with Larry Haverty, Gabelli Multimedia Trust Associate Portfolio Manager, about the fight in the media world for the British company Sky. He said, aside from the major players, there are three dark horses that could still enter the race. I think at the end of the day, the thing that you need is really simple. You have to control the cash flow. And in order to control the cash flow, you have to have 51% of the vote. So owning 39% uh, is really like owning nothing. And so you have this enormous free cash flow. And notice the word free here. They've built the satellites. The UK is not really growing very rapidly at all. It's very profitable if they can hook somebody else up in addition. So the free cash flow is wonderful. You can leverage at low interest rates. It's a dynamic combination. This is going to be a very contentious, long battle. Yeah. All right. So Comcast bid 16% higher than Fox did for Sky. Um, 
you're saying that we can basically expect a counteroffer here. I can't imagine that an asset that's this unique in an environment where interest rates are this low and there's this much free cash flow uh, is going to uh, uh, stay at this level. I just find it very, very hard to uh, to believe. Plus, you have the behavior patterns of the players. Mm. Brian likes leverage, and Bob, I don't <laughs> think he likes leverage as much as Brian, but he's not afraid of it. He learned at Cap Cities. So what is Fox going to have to pay in order to get shareholders over the line here, then? I, I would think that the shareholders at B-Sky-B probably be happy 15 20% above uh, but remember, this is going to take a long time. The UK regulatory process is, exactly. is torturous. Changed. So, so yeah. you've, you've already had it going, what, 14, 15 months? This is going to clearly extend it for six months to a year. So you, you're not talking about a final bid anywhere near these, uh, uh, these prices. And I think this is not bad for the shareholders of, of these companies. Their valuations are very, very low, uh, both Comcast and Disney. Uh, the, the real fly in the ointment here is if interest rates go up too fast, too quickly. That mucks up the water uh, immensely. So who wins? Uh, I think at the end of the day, Brian wins. Uh, wow. I, I, uh, I, I just uh, think one of the uh, short books in the world is when uh, Comcast uh, walks away from a deal. I'm curious, uh, reading, there was a line in our report quoting Brian Roberts. Talk about the technology of uh, Sky and how that was a very exciting thing. And they went to this store in London and they checked out the cable box and they were super impressed. Is that, in your view, a plausible explanation for the interest or is it just like that's like, yeah, that's a nice cherry on top? I, I think but, that that might be some optionality in the yeah. deal. Uh, I don't think at the end of the day, I certainly don't know. Probably he didn't know when he walked uh, walked over there, uh, which is uh, kind of interesting because with X1, Comcast is at the lead end of yeah. technology here in the United States in the uh, in, in the cable business. Uh, but I think the, uh, the, the, the situation here is that where Sky operates, the economies are in very good shape, probably the best shape they've been in in 20 years. The, the satellite infrastructure is built uh, and the free cash flow is just uh, coming out like Niagara Falls. <laughs> Who's more sensitive to this dragging out for a long period of time? Uh, well, it would have to be Disney because the Comcast uh, company has control shareholders. So the only one whose opinion really matters is the Roberts uh, family. And uh, the Roberts family doesn't walk away from uh, very many financial confrontations. And if Comcast does win, then they've still got their ownership. Disney's still got their ownership to worry about. How do they then react? Uh, I think at the end of the day, uh, there may be some kind of peace offering among uh, the two of them so that somebody gets control of Hulu. I think it's going to be mm. loser gets Hulu, winner gets B, B Sky B. How, how is that as a consolation prize? Is Hulu good? Uh, I am very interested in knowing the answer to that question, and I, <laughs> I don't know it because these nice people won't let me look at the numbers. And uh, I've been doing this long enough so that I'm much better stating an opinion when I've seen the numbers than when I haven't. You mentioned that uh, Comcast uh, and they're, they're trading at compelling valuations right now. What, what do you make of that? I mean, where could they go and why do you think that there's uh, this investor discount on these assets? Uh, I think the, uh, the, the, the problem, and you know, I've been watching it for oh, more than uh, a couple decades, uh, is the investment business has always undervalued cable. Hmm. They've always thought that cable was way more constrained uh, that it could only do certain things, and then along comes what we used to call the cable modem. Now we right. call it data, and all of a sudden, 
the options uh, have have exploded. And uh, the, the satellite technology is clearly more constrained than uh, than cable. And I think the market still, when I look at cable companies, undervalues cable. Right now, this is between Comcast and Fox or Disney. Could anyone else enter this? Is there could there be a dark horse player here? Oh, there there's three dark horses, uh, and they all live in California. Yeah, uh, Apple, Amazon, mm-hmm. uh, Google. I don't think Facebook, but uh, uh, clearly they're interested in the content business. They're interested in the distribution business. I think there there's probably Google would have enormous antitrust problems uh, over in uh, over in Europe. So, uh, but Apple uh, Apple would not. Uh, Amazon would not. Uh, so they could go in. I don't think. That that they uh, uh, that they will. I think you you really want the the B Sky B management, which in my opinion has done a spectacular job for 15, 20 years anyway. Uh, you want them in place, and you don't want to have any any disruption mm. in how that uh, uh, that sorts itself out. And, and do they ultimately push for the Comcast deal themselves as shareholders of B Sky B? If we just break it down into the individual components here, because. Uh, is it a win-win for them because they're going to get a higher price? Or ultimately, if this thing drags out, they want a quicker solution? At well, what point is the tipping point for these guys, too? Judging from your accent, I think you probably have a better idea of that than, <laughs> uh, than I do. The question is, how mercantile are you uh, UK people? In the United States, I think you'd almost always go for the higher bid. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I'll leave that to, uh, to the Brits. All right, so final question. When do you see this being resolved by? I think we're going to be uh, talking about this uh, probably December. December of 2018. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, okay. By the time the deal finally consummates. Okay. And it'll be uh, at, 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 that would be on the early. Uh, and my, my, my bet would be on Comcast. I was about to say, thank you for checking the year there. <laughs> and we talked to Bill Lee, Milken Institute chief economist. He joined us to discuss Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell's first congressional testimony. He described what's ahead in terms of rate hikes, investment, and he talked about Powell's personal touch. I think the, the theory behind the, what the Trump administration has been trying to do with the tax package is not so much to stimulate the economy because it's the most ill-timed stimulus in the world, as everyone is saying. But if the theory is that we can actually expand capacity by stimulating investment and incentivizing investment to reshape investments so that we can have longer based investment, longer-term investment that is productivity-enhancing, that will hold down inflation and that will be able to give us the kind of virtuous uh, cycle that we want in terms of faster growth, higher wages, and no inflation. But the key to that is to be able to invest in more productive equipment and, 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 and technologies. And up until now, the incentives have been to use debt financing because you can write it off in taxes and everything else. And, and right now, I think that by, by having the tax package have a set of incentives that it emphasizes more equity, firms and managers are saying, you know, we should be more long-term oriented. We should, don't have to invest in tangible equipment and things to pay back our loans. And I think that's our greatest hope for expanding capacity. Now, one, one little fill up here, the uh, incentives that are put in place to bring back corporate cash abroad, retain earnings abroad, this reverse inversion notion, um, that was supposed to give some of the funds to finance some of the investment right now. My research is showing that at least given past experience, like what happened in 2004, most of that money that does come back really goes to dividends, stock buybacks, yes. and, and, and repurchases. And everyone says, oh, how terrible. That stuff is wasted. But I, I think what I'm trying to find evidence of is that actually we have a closed financial system in the sense that when shareholders get their money back, what are they going to do with it? Buy more uh, Cheerios and, 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 and Wheaties? I don't think so, right? They're going to be investing it in 
other plant mm. and equipment because essentially their managers are telling them, we can't use your capital. Why don't you find a better use for it? And, and my research is demonstrating at least some er early evidence that the owners of the capital, the shareholders, are actually putting it to work. But it takes a while for this stuff to filter through the system. In fact, it takes as long as maybe three to five years wow. before it finds itself back into the, the, the firm investment and, and, and plant equipment investment that will be productivity enhancing. So, yeah. so it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's not a great thing that we have this, this, this amount of, um, of buybacks and, and dividends. And very much related to that, Bank of America Merrill Lynch data shows we've had a near record start to the yes. year for buybacks. Yeah, we have. Uh, Bill, we, uh, we talked about in the last segment that the last time we really got a productivity boom, which saw wages go up and inflation be pretty mellow, that was in the 90s. What were the conditions that allowed that to happen in the 90s, and how similar is that to what we see today? In the 90s, what we saw was uh, uh, some capacity that was there, but also I think we had a, a, an economy that was coming out of uh, a recession, just as we are now, but not as long uh, a stretch out of the recession. In other words, we are now reaching a point where labor resources and, and other resources are reaching their limits. But the key to productivity is that you make the existing labor force more productive. And I think that's exactly what happened in the 90s. The introduction of the computer took a long time before worker productivity became more productive, at, at least measurably more productive. It's like that old line from, from Solo that says, you know, the, 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 the productivity is everywhere but in the data. And I think one of the things that we are having difficulty now is measuring the kind of productivity enhancement a lot of the technology investment, a lot of the plant modernizing and equipment modernizing has been giving us. As I said, it takes a long time before the investments lead to the increase in productivity that allows us to have the buffer for inflation. Mm. What you see some evidence of is, in fact, the, the, the Amazon that you just talked about earlier. Amazon is preventing a lot of firms out there from raising prices, right. even though their costs are going up. And so technological changes are allowing a lot of sustained wage increases without having price increases. And I think that is a good sign that the kind of productivity enhancements we want are being put in place, but they're just hard to measure right now. Yeah. Yeah. And that's it for What You Missed This Week. If you like what you heard, subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. And make sure you watch us every day on Bloomberg TV from 3.30 to 5 p.m. or just catch us from 4 to 5 p.m. live on Twitter. Have a great weekend. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.